You're listening to Secrets of Tomorrow's Leaders. My name is Corin Young from RK Studios, and I'm joined here with my co-host today, Daniela Chez. Hey, Corin. Hello, Daniela. Welcome back. You were on our very first episode, I believe. Yes, great to be back. And second. We have a, another special guest today. Yes, today we have Dan Williams, who is our trainer for August. He'll be leading a training session on August 26th about extreme ownership. Dan's been working with executives at over a thousand businesses, ranging from small to large trillion dollar businesses. He's also spent his time working with high school and college students in our valley. Welcome, Dan. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Yeah, glad to have you, Dan. This is uh, exciting. So you, you've worked with over a thousand businesses. That number is just staggering. It seems bigger than it should be, but it is actually just a little over a thousand. Yeah. I mean, what you said over the last 20 years, so my right. quick math tells me that an average of a new business every single week. About for- that. Maybe a little more than 20, but it has been that. It's been a joy just meeting people where they are and helping them try to figure out next steps. Right. So you work specifically with management, with executives at these businesses? Primarily so. Decision makers um, sitting around the table, helping them navigate difficulty, struggle, challenge, oftentimes people-related issues, and helping them work through those. Yes. Yeah. What's the the number one uh, issue that you'd say uh, most businesses need help with? I think most businesses need help with developing their talent. Many don't do it very well. Many leave it to the individuals to figure it out on their own. So what I try to do is help them develop a framework to maximize the potential of the people that they have. And many companies have just wonderful people that can go to the next level if someone will help them get there. So do you primarily work with the executives or maybe with their HR teams? Great question. Usually it starts with the executives and then based on what's going on, it will then become maybe a series of projects or, or one project. Oftentimes, though, it's essentially helping that senior leader be more effective. It's never marketed that way. It's usually they think someone else needs to improve, and it usually ends up being them. And <laughs> what I try to do is, is just help them strengthen uh, going forward. But um, sometimes people don't realize how much, how many wonderful opportunities are, surround them until you kind of help them see that. I feel like that's kind of the same job that a therapist does, where someone's telling you all their problems and how the whole world sucks and everyone's mean to them. And without coming out and saying it, you have to kind of get them to realize "Mm, the problem might be you. Exactly. And that happens sometimes. And if you are going to, if you are going to be that blunt with someone, you you have to have compassion for them. Yeah. Because sometimes you do have those difficult conversations. How often have the executives actually accepted that they might be the problem? That's a great question. And I would suggest to you that it's very hard. Um, part of it is maybe a little bit of ego, but I've had many that, you know, we do feedback assessments, things like that. And there's a statement that if, you know, if if somebody gives you a saddle, give it back. If five people give you a saddle, you know, you're essentially a horse, put it on. And, (laughs) and the idea there is, you know, we use feedback as a tool. And if enough people say, yeah, this is my experience. And I'll give you an example from today, have one senior leader that is a good person, but when things aren't going well, He looks like a serial killer with his face. So everybody's afraid. And so we took a snapshot of it happened today and showed it to him and he was mortified. Wow. He had no idea he could look that way, but when he would be frustrated, he just, his facial expressions go south and people get scared. So in showing this to him, he and I are going to work on improving that. Now he's a great guy and he's quite willing to improve it. He just didn't believe it was happening. So what you do isn't necessarily 
training sessions like you are doing with us. It's a lot of one-on-one coaching. So are you meeting with somebody weekly? Are they one-time sessions? Are they long-term? It's usually anywhere from six months to a year to a year and a half. Change takes time Uh and it takes time to really understand where someone's current reality is versus what their desired state is. So it does take a period of time and then and then we'll work through various facets, but it's usually growing the individual leader so they can be more effective and have a greater impact on those people around them. Is that ever a surprise to them? Like when, when a business decides to hire you, mm-hmm. uh, do they ever feel like, you know, I don't know, we've been working with this Dan for three weeks and it's still, we've still got these issues. Do, do they realize it's kind of a long-term commitment on their end? Well, I think for, for my role, it's really important that I help them understand that it's, it's, um, it's crock pot, it's not microwave. So it's going to take a little bit of time, you know, for us to work through changes and opportunities. And it does take time and change isn't a guarantee at all. You know, sometimes we can strive to improve in certain areas and it's just not who we're capable of becoming. And then I've had that happen like recently with a leader and um, he's a great guy and a hard worker, but he was miscast in the role he was in. So we all closely work together and he's now in a much better role. Uh, you are full of fantastic analogies, by the way. That's one thing that coaching allows you to. It's just a laboratory for learning. Yeah. And the one thing as a coach, um, I am not a fully formed individual. I need to get better as well. So I don't go in as an authority. I really go in as a student, quite frankly. That's so cool. So how often do you end up learning something? Probably every single time. Yeah. Because if I, you know, when I go home, my wife asks me to take out the trash. I don't go home as an expert. <laughs> so, you know, it's it's a... The thing that I love about coaching is it's a lifelong learning and growth opportunity. So Dan, how did you get started in the path of coaching? Because not many people strive to become a coach. Mm-hmm. Um, most see leadership as not being a coach. It's a great question. I received an opportunity to become a leader of an outplacement firm, a career management firm in Los Angeles. And we primarily earned our revenue from layoffs. So when Raytheon purchased Hughes Air back in the day, Uh, We had a career center, and I got a chance to work with hundreds of displaced employees. And I immediately developed a heart for them because I got to learn all the stories. And then it's putting the pieces together and helping them create even a better chapter than the one that just came to an end. And I kind of got hooked on that. The idea of meeting somebody in their time of need, creating some, I guess, solidification of their circumstance and helping them move forward, that's something that I got hooked on quite a long time ago. And and I wanted to continue to do that as time goes on. And I got out of the leadership aspect of the, uh, of the career management firm because it was pulling me further and further away from working with people. And I was mainly managing a business and 90% of my time was managing the business and about 10% of my time was spent with people. So I decided to make a change. And now all of, I'd say 90% of my time is with people. And I think I'm, I'm, it's a better fit for me and also ultimately for others as well. Yeah. When you think about when you started over 20 years ago doing yes. this, uh, is there anything that you wish you could tell yourself back then, things that you learned, really significant things that you've learned about your job? What I would tell myself 20 years ago is be humble. Don't go in with answers. Go in with questions. Pay attention. Uh, be patient. You don't know it all and you never will. So be humble is what I would tell myself. I think I said that twice. Yeah. yeah well, I've learned that. It bears repeating, I suppose. <laughs> sure. So that's something where you were kind of um, cocky or when you were younger? I wouldn't say cocky, but I felt like I needed to go in with answers. Uh-huh. And, and an effective coach really is able to develop good questions to work through as opposed to provide solutions and answers. Now it's part of it and you help people get there. 
But um, I had to learn the hard way that um, listening was a far more important skill than I thought it was when I when I first started. Yeah. Now, I find it interesting because uh, in my career, I've often had leaders who expected you to have the answers versus yes. asking questions. They actually preferred you ask less questions and actually have all the answers. Definitely. So how, if someone starting their career, how do they balance not looking like, they don't know what they're doing and still maintain that humility. Boy, that's a, okay. I keep saying that's a great question, but but it is. Yeah, but you only say it to her. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think one thing as a as a coach versus a consultant, I don't necessarily come in with the answers. I come in with the questions, and then out of those questions, we formulate um, a new future. And that's always a fun opportunity to do. And it's oftentimes behaviorally oriented. So what we oftentimes look to do is you know, what, what behaviors can we help you improve? And I'll give you an example of an absolutely wonderful leader that I worked with. We're done now. Highly, highly assertive, but enthusiasm very low. So when a message is given, it's given in a way that people have a hard time with it because it, it almost sounds like a threat. Now, she doesn't feel like she wants to threaten anyone, but her enthusiasm is so low and she's so direct that people fear her. So I was hired because everyone fears her. And in getting to know her, she's an absolutely wonderful person who isn't intending for anyone to fear her. However, her enthusiasm is so low and she's so direct that there's no filter and people are like terrified. So we worked on that and she completely turned it around. She now takes a minute or two to check in with people, to show empathy and concern for them and care. And they've given her accolades for completely changing. She didn't change. She just simply accentuated more the care that she already felt inside that just wasn't showing up. So as a result of that, everyone in the building was afraid of her. And now I think almost like half are no longer. There's still half that are, but because they don't deal with her as much. But the company would say she made a massive change. We're so proud of her. And I would say she didn't change much, just a very little just maybe intentionally looking in on people a little bit, and it made all the difference. Did the employees know that she had undergone training for that? They were aware because they saw me in the building. Because uh -huh. like when they see me there, that coach is here, because I'm tall, <laughs> and they knew that I was working with her. But I want to give her full credit because she embraced the coaching relationship from the beginning. Because normally when someone says to you, hey, we've hired a coach for you, it's not necessarily viewed as a compliment. No. <laughs> no. But it, it really is, it's an investment in their future. And, um, you know, if things don't work out, it's more my fault than hers anyway. Yeah. You know, you know when you uh, mentioned her situation, it reminded me of Michael Scott from The Office. Okay. You know, when they asked him, would you rather be loved or feared? And his answer was something stupid with, I want people to be afraid of how much they love, <laughs> love me. me. <laughs> yeah. Great answer. Absolutely. So give me an example of something that she might have said that would be uh, come off as threatening when it wasn't intended. I was looking for the report last night. I think you got my email. Did you get my email last night? I didn't get it last night. I got it today. Can you explain to me what's going on? Oh. I can see exactly where they would perceive it. Okay. And then uh, asking, can you explain to me what's going on? That sounds harsh. It wasn't meant that way, but like factually what's going on. And the other person's like, Ugh, um, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. I didn't get your email. And it turned out that the email actually didn't get sent. So the person actually didn't get it, but they were afraid to say they didn't get it because they're afraid of her. Now you've uh, worked with high school and yes. college students. Yes. What are things that you work on with students? 
I love students. I don't think it's ever been harder to be them than it is in 2020 with all of the outside events, uh, competing demands. Uh, with high school students, I work primarily on their future and helping them envision kind of where they want to put their time and energy, what how they want to develop. I went to UCLA in the 80s. I had a little over a B average. I applied and I went. You know, today I have to have about a 4.3 or 4. I have to be almost perfect, right? You have to be in every club. Absolutely. You know, the common application, which is an application tool, you can list up to 10 activities. Who on earth has time for school and 10 activities? It's a hard climate. What I really help them do is kind of create a sustainable life and also decide maybe where they want to put their time and their energy as it relates to college and a career. So once again, it ties into the career piece. But I really have a heart for young people because I don't think I've seen a climate that's harder than the one right now. Right. And then with college students, I'll work with them on really the the interviewing, the negotiating, because most college grads aren't negotiators when it comes to, you know, a, um, a hiring package. So really then, and then also making the most of their first 90 days in the workforce and making an impact, which is part of what I'm going to talk about um, at our session, this, this concept of give 60, take 40. So I'm gonna spend some time on that. And I heard that from Angela Ahrens. She was an executive at to Apple and then became the CEO of Burberry. But her dad gave her this advice for her whole life. Like anything you do, anywhere you go, always give 60 and take 40. So you're leaving an investment in everything you do. So I want you, what he would say is, I want you to always over deliver beyond what anyone ever asks you to do. If you'll simply do that in all things, um, you will be quite successful. And um, she talked about that and it just it just rang a bell with me. So I've been kind of running with that concept for the last two years um, in the midst of finishing a book on that very topic called Give 60, Take 40. And the idea behind it is I have to get better. If, if something's not going right in my life, I have to look in the mirror, not out the window. And there's some things I have to do more effectively if I'm going to create change. So I think the notion is it's my responsibility to go to the next level. I don't want to point fingers. I want to get better. And by my example, I should be able to have more influence. So that's really kind of the concept of, of give 60 and take 40. And I plan to get into kind of a couple different ways to ways to do that. Um, one of them is, a, is an idea called um, tactical empathy. And it comes from, um, it comes from a, an FBI agent that used it. His name is Chris Voss. And he used to use it because he was the number one hostage negotiator. And what they wouldn't do is they wouldn't remind the, the individual, you know, what kind, of, what kind of sentence they were looking at. Chris would go and say, how did we get here today? You know, what's your name? I'm Chris. You know, let's kind of, what, what, is there anything you need right now? Like, tell me about your life. And he would just connect. And he had such a great track record of getting people to give up, uh, turn themselves in, everything's fine. But this notion that if I have empathy for you, it doesn't mean I agree. It's not sympathy. It's not compassion, but it's a compassionate act having empathy. So the idea is I want to have empathy. I want to understand everyone I deal with. I have to do a better job of understanding where they're coming from and who they are. And only in doing that can I be effective. So I have to look in the mirror and I have to fix that because I don't always do that well. Wow. That sounds like such a dirty trick to do it. <laughs> knowing that you're trying to get someone to surrender, but you know, that's, you're probably the only person in their life that has ever said, I understand you. Right. Well, there's a really powerful example from, from Chris's book. And he wrote this bestseller called never split the difference. 
And there was a group that was held up in an apartment and he sat outside the apartment door for four hours and he spoke to them and they never responded. He said, hey guys, it's been about a half hour. If you need anything to drink, anything to eat, let me know, I can have it brought up to you. No one ever said anything. And in four hours they came out and surrendered. And they said, uh, we, we surrendered because we just, we just felt the care that you have for us and you didn't want anything to go wrong for us. You wanted us to survive and, and, and you knew that we were in trouble and you didn't give up on us. You spent four hours sitting out here and, and, and they gave up. So the idea there was, you know, empathy really matters. And for me, I don't naturally have empathy at all. <laughs> so oh, it's, it's something that I've had to learn and continue to learn. Wow, how do you even learn something like that? I feel like it's either something you have or you don't, but. Right, it is a muscle that you can build, you know, but for me, I was so uh, me oriented, this was 20 years ago that, that I had to change because it wasn't working. And now I just, I feel like there's so much I can learn from you that if I take the time, I'll get wiser as a result. Yeah. So, so that notion really of, of tactical empathy is one example of give 60, take 40. If people feel heard, um, it's going to improve things. Outside of individual coaching sessions like this, how yeah. often do you do training sessions like what, we're do, what you're doing for Great us? question. Training sessions yes. I, I do about once a month. So you had a good question. <laughs> training sessions I do about about once a month. I really enjoy them. Okay. And, and once again, you never know who's who's in the audience and you never know what the need is. So for me, I view it as a, I view it as a get to. I get to speak to people and, and, and reach and try to add value. And that's, that's really the only reason that I would want to do it. Um, I think 20 years ago, I did it to satisfy an ego and I had to overcome that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now it's authentic. <laughs> well, that's good. Yeah. The, the, uh, the training that you're doing for us is on ownership. Yes. And that, that, that's a concept I'm not even really familiar with. What, okay. what does it mean to take ownership? Great question. It came from the, the book, Extreme Ownership. And I'm not going to get into the book, but ownership really is, to me, it's two facets. It's how can I become the best version of myself? And what are those disciplines that I have to continue to further? And then secondarily, how can I best work alongside of others? How can I add the most value to people that are around me? So it's really a, we're going to get into how to really do both. Now, give 60, take 40 is part of the ownership piece. So I always want to exceed expectations. I want to advance, understand what is required <clears throat> and how can I over deliver? How can I do more than I'm being asked right now? Because if I just give 50 and take 50, it's just a transaction and no one's going to remember me and no one's going to feel any value. You know, you, you, you gave what we asked for goodbye. So the idea of give 60 means, you know, when this person's involved, things get better, but it does require extra discipline, extra focus, um, preparation, and also the ability to hear feedback. And one of the things that I'll be talking about as well is, is the gift of feedback. There's so much feedback available if we'll take the time to, to receive it. How do you coach people along receiving that feedback? Um, my experience, uh, even if you try to keep things neutral, uh, not many people are open and receptive and, and usually don't look into the mirror and see if maybe some of their truths to what you're giving them. Interestingly enough, earlier today, I was meeting with a student and his mom and for the very first time. And I asked him, I said, what do you love about your mom? And I had no idea what he was going to say. And he said, I have too many things I love about her to even tell you. And of course, mom loses it oh. in a good way. And, you know, when, when we walked out, she said, I'm just shocked by what he said. And to me, like that's valuable feedback that he didn't need me in the room to give to her at any point in time. So 
part of feedback is positive. You know, are you encouraging people enough? If you go on vacation and you leave for a couple of days, your plants start to wilt. And when you come back and water them, they come back in time. People, in my opinion, are the same way. If we're not receiving encouragement and feedback, in a positive sense, we tend to wilt in the environments that we're in. And I'm not saying over water, because that's negative as well. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, the, the feedback that's positive, I think all of us could give it more. But that really wasn't your question. Your question was really more the challenging feedback, right? Yes. <laughs> okay. I think we have to be conditioned to value it. And I think we're not naturally inclined to hear it. But I try to teach that feedback is a gift. And there's always something that we can learn. And if we don't want to hear it, it probably means we need to learn it for sure. You know, as far as that goes. Do you walk them through, like when you're giving negative feedback, do you give them time to process and come yes. back to you? Yes. Always want to be, you know, kind of firm on the issue, but soft on the person. And for me, I always point out where, like if I've ever struggled in that area, I, I put myself front and center. You know, gosh, you know what we're giving you feedback on. I've actually been like 10 times worse. And let me tell you how. So to make it to make it more real. But if we will allow others to provide us meaningful feedback, um, it, it is such a gift and we can grow so much. But I don't think it's taught. And on the flip side, when you've guided executives or maybe leaders, mm -hmm. how have you guided them to give that feedback in a way that is receptive, that they're not nitpicking on every little thing that the person might not be doing right. perfectly in their eyes? I feel that you're abusing an employee if you don't give them hard feedback. Like if I'm not happy with Frank and I don't tell Frank, I feel like I'm abusing him because I'm not giving him a chance to grow. Now, how I, how I communicate it is critical, but if I'm not letting Frank know what I'm seeing or feeling or hearing, I'm really doing him a disservice. So what I try to do is help the leader um, be really clear on what he wants Frank to improve, but also believe in Frank and maybe help Frank see how to make that happen and what an incredible future it's gonna be when he can add that skill to his ability. But I'm completely in favor of hard feedback, assuming it's legitimate and it usually is. And I really feel like people are being misled if you don't give it to them. Some people can't give hard, bad news, hard news. And they make everything positive when, when it really isn't and they know it isn't. No, but I like what you said about soft on the person. Yes. Like there's a nice way to say it. Yes. You know, that would be like, you know, this behavior that, that has come up for you, we, we're not going to be able to continue that, but we're going to help you through it. I appreciate the energy that you put into the response, but we got to come up with a better way. That would be like an example, you know, because I think most people, they want to do a good job, but sometimes people, they don't understand how to communicate effectively. Do you think that your skills would make you a good relationship coach? I think so, but I, I'm a student of relationship as well. I want to make that really clear <laughs> that um, I am in no means a relationship expert, and there's plenty of people that could testify to that. Uh, but um, I enjoy working, and I do a lot of relationship work with teams and people and leaders. Um, I really enjoy it, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, at the end of the day, it's all relationships. It just, is. Just different kinds. Definitely. And I guess you'd have to have some of the same same skills. Right. You know, empathy and right. saying something in a nice way where you're not tearing someone down every time. It's a dance. And you've got to be really careful because especially I just assume that whoever I'm giving feedback to, they've had a hard day, hard week, hard week, hard month, hard life. And I need to, once again, assume that. And it's easier to hear. One other topic we're going to talk about, which was given to me by a very wise person, is defining what a problem is. And I define a problem as something you can do something about. There's some action that I can take. 
If I can't do anything about it, it's not a problem. It's a fact of life. So I put all my time and energy to solving problems and I leave facts of life, facts of life. I don't put any energy into them because I've determined they're immovable. So for example, if I happen to have a boss that just doesn't like me and I've tried to improve that and nothing works, I move it over to the fact of life and I just go about doing the best job I possibly can and I don't worry about it. Now, it, before that though, I would wanna to try to improve that relationship. But what I try to help people do is put all their time and energy into problems and leave the facts of life as they are, facts of life. And we can all find things that, that are facts of life that maybe we're putting a little bit of energy into. And what I try to help us do is maybe just, you know, let's put our energy into things that are a better investment. And let's just allow those, those facts of life just to be. How do you help them through to figuring out whether it's a fact of life or it's a problem that's, that's a great question. going to be solved someday? <laughs> Usually what we try to do is we'll role play it and we'll look at possible solutions. And we'll, you know, and oftentimes it's, yeah, I tried that, that didn't work. But usually it's, okay, if there's some specific measurable type of action we can take, let's do it and let's see what happens. If, if we've learned enough already, let's move it over and let's not let it get in our bloodstream. Because what I always suggest is, if it's a fact of life, don't let it in your bloodstream, meaning don't let it get in your system and, and affect you. Is there ever a point where a fact of life is something that you just don't accept? Like if you were to say something like, my boss just doesn't like me, instead of moving it into a category where you're like shrugging it off and say, I can't do anything about it. Do you ever just say like, well, I guess I should just not work here? It's definitely an option. And if it's hindering my career, it's probably a really good decision, you know, to make a move. But there are some people that just aren't going to like us. And I would just say, you know, be kind, be authentic, but there will be some that just don't resonate with you and that's okay. Yeah, because at the end of the day, you're there to perform a job as long as you can work within reasonable boundaries and deliver, then it shouldn't be an issue and there's your fact of life. Absolutely. But I think sometimes we get caught up in, in just putting energy in things that are immovable. So the idea there is let's focus on, okay, what can I action? And once again, I turn back to myself if someone's having a problem with me, let me look in the mirror. How can I do a better job of connecting with them? I'm probably the problem, and I usually am. So in that example, there's usually plenty of things that I can do usually to improve um, a working relationship, et cetera. But usually I'm waiting for that person to, to step towards me. And I'll give you a quick example. Let's say that, that um, I have a problem with John, and I view John being 90% of the problem. Well, normally I would wait for John to fix himself, right? Mm -hmm. But I'm 10% of the problem in my bad equation, but I'm also 100% responsible for my 10%. So I should immediately go to work on my 10% and not wait for John to do something about his 90 because probably my 10% is off. So if I get going working on my side, chances are John's going to meet me more than halfway. So as a coach and as a person, I got to work on my stuff first and foremost, even if it's 90-10. Wow, I hadn't... And uh, hmm. thought about that, but I like that you're responsible for 100% of, of your 10%. Your percent. <laughs> right. Of whatever you think it is, even if you're wrong. It's a hard lesson. <laughs> you you got to dedicate yourself to doing something about it. Definitely. Uh. You got to be all in. Right. So once again, like as we talk about the theme of ownership, I'm probably the problem. That's probably the theme of the talk, meaning that there's a lot I need to do to improve. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's a good way to, to look at it. Yeah. Uh, the training, again, is on August 26th. Yes. It's uh, via Zoom, so from the comfort of our own homes. Right. Uh, for tickets and information, we'll check out jcisantaclarita.com. And uh, do you have a website or a way that people can get a hold of you? Um, Dan at potential2purpose.com okay. is the website. Great. Okay. Yes. Cool. Thanks. And uh, Daniela, where can we people find this podcast? 
They can find it on our website at jcisantaclarita.com. And they could also find it on our Instagram platforms and YouTube and YouTube and Spotify and (laughs) iTunes and Google Podcasts. Exactly. They're all over the place. So thank you guys for listening. This is Secrets of Tomorrow's Leaders. Dan, thank you so much. Thank you. And uh, Daniela, good having you here again. Thanks.